Hey folks, welcome back to the Playful Podcast. Today on our CEO series, we continue talking to wonderful leaders in the sector. And Clara Miller is our guest today, who is the retired CEO of the FB Heron Foundation and also was the founder and CEO of the nonprofit Finance Fund, which is a wonderful organization supporting the nonprofit sector. And you will hear us talk about how to use play to bring people together, how to make things light even when they're heavy, which is an ongoing theme with the podcast. And Clara says that sometimes being playful in the nonprofit sector is like telling a joke in church. So we have some fun laughing about that and thinking about what other metaphors apply and the resilience that we gain when we bring play into the hard work of changing the world. So enjoy the episode. So glad you're here. Nonprofit and philanthropic leaders devote their lives to the service of others, but sometimes they need a little help. Christine Mitchie has been deep in the work and the play of helping changemakers grow their impact for decades. So whether you're ladling soup at a local shelter or attending a UN peace conference, you need to find the balance between the heavy work and a light touch so you don't burn out. And Christine believes play is at the center of that. Welcome to the Playful Podcast bringing fun to the serious work of changing the world. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Playful Podcast. We are in the midst of our CEO season, and today we have with us Clara Miller, who is a retired CEO from a few different change organizations. I'm going to have her tell you about that and about what she's doing now and how she's poking the bear. (laughs) which is a lot of fun. So let me turn it over to Clara and we're going to get rolling and she'll tell you a bit about uh, her work and her space in the sector. Super. Well, I discovered by doing the arithmetic that I have actually had about a 50-year career, which was daunting to even think about. And about 30 of those I spent building, founding, then building the Nonprofit Finance Fund, which is a community development financial institution focused on nonprofit organizations, their finances, their financing needs. And it became a leading CDFI nationally and is now run by a wonderful woman. And it's thriving, I think, partly because I let it go. And the job that I then took was to be the leader, the president of the F.B. Heron Foundation, which is a, a foundation that for years and years and continuing is really beloved to the community development world, including we were a grantee at NFF of theirs. And when I took the job, I said, let's reinvent what a foundation can be for the 21st century. And so that's what we did during the seven years or the eight years I was there. That meant thinking of all of the assets, 100% of the assets, which includes the endowment, as assets that are focused on mission. And many people don't realize that most nonprofit, most foundations have 100% of their assets conventionally invested. I would say that happily, we've had folks on the podcast so far over the last few seasons, several of whom have worked in this sort of in this space. And I think, especially over the last few years, there's been a lot of talk and some action around kind of approaching some of like the fundamental systemic disconnects, problems, challenges with the philanthropic sector. You were at that longer ago and for a long time. What Claire is referring to, one of the things she's referring to is the fact that, you know, foundations, many of the, of the listeners will know this, but foundations are only required to spend out 5% of what they've got in their corpus, their endowment towards the charitable purposes and the rest can be invested, you know, clearly to, you know, generate, you know, more investable income. But there's certainly calls in the sector have been for a long time about unlocking 
that 95%, the very least investing it differently and potentially even, and some do give some of that away. So I'm going to ask about how playfulness, because you have a reputation. So folks, the term thought leader is one that we toss around. I'm sitting with one. This really, I mean, thought leader, leading thoughts, right? I believe, I feel like I'm so proud to sit with you and grateful because you've got a reputation for kind of calling it out, right? And naming, you know, just because we've done it this way, should we still? How has play or playfulness given you entree, has it, into difficult conversations or relationships that you know you're going to challenge, perhaps? Wow. Well, play is serious business, as you know. You know, play is the way we learn how to build communities when we're children sometimes, that, you know, unstructured play. And Playfulness is the art of lightening moments and taking and playing with power, really. Not taking yourself seriously, but taking your purpose seriously. And I think that if somebody doesn't experience that in their bones, uh, it's sort of something you have to make up for over time. So I think it's at the foundation of what makes communities work, what makes businesses work, what makes an economy work for everybody. And I think informal play is right in that, in the middle of that target, that bullseye. You told me in our, one of our prep calls, I think the quote was, that sometimes being playful in the change sector can be like making a joke in church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it took me a while. I, you know, everybody has to learn all the time. <laughs> and that's one thing that play does for you. But I had to learn that not everybody thought that what I was saying was a joke sometimes. So, or they didn't know how to interpret joking. They thought that I was not being serious when I was joking. And so getting straight when it's appropriate and when it's not. I mean, I think if you're just, you know, kind of joking around all the time, you know, it's not going to work. But if you can understand how to use improvisation, use all of the things that one did in unstructured play as a child, improvisation, uh, kind of a jazz approach, if you will, as opposed to a set uh, piece approach, teamwork, making sure everybody can play, making sure nobody goes and tells mom that bad things are going on. You know, how, how to keep everybody safe, but to do things that are a little bit dangerous, maybe. All of those things teach you a lot. So you were telling me that while you were reflecting on play, that you realized we lose track of time when we play, especially as kids. But I'm thinking about if we can lose track of time when we're doing change work, that might be a method of keeping it, doing it and having long, actually like having sus, you know, being sustained because you're lost in it in a certain way, in a yes. playful way. Yes. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think that you do it with all your heart. You are called to it. One of the things about the people in the nonprofit sector and in the service sector, like in things like public service, whether it's being a fireman or a first responder, you're called to that mission almost invariably. Otherwise, you know, who would do this crazy stuff? You know, this is kind of the thing. and. If you're called to something, it doesn't feel quite as much like a burden. I uh, was speaking with a guest recently, and this seems so obvious when she said it, but she was pointing out that if that's so, and I agree with you, then we're kind of by definition hanging out with others who heard the same call. Yeah. Even if we ended up in a different sort of part of the sector, we have commonality around which 
we know there's going to, friendships develop pretty naturally, probably because of that through line. Yes, absolutely. And one of the most interesting experiences that Nonprofit Finance Fund brought me, then that whole passage, was that I did a lot of work with banks. So NFF and all of my co-workers were working on the kind of cusp of the for-profit and nonprofit sectors. And many of the folks we brought over to help us at NFF were bankers and were fantastically helpful. But it was a different world over here, and it revealed the real differences, some of which, you know, it was, it was so helpful to find out what actually professional bankers did and why, what the nature of enterprise finance meant to somebody who was a banker, how accounting worked. You know, I was an art major, for heaven's (laughs) sakes. You know, what am I doing here? What's happened to me? But at the same time, a lot of the assumptions you have as a banker are not going to hold in a nonprofit context. And so it's a constant balancing act of how do you kind of use those skills for something that is pulling more people into the economy in our case? pulling more people into the mainstream of capital. And I think that that is true up and down the nonprofit sector. You know, I was at dinner last night with some bankers who are, so some folks on listening will know about the Community Reinvestment Act. And that is an act that decades old that mandated as a mitigation to redlining, which is we can get into all of those things. Some of you know about that. But so banks are required to put a certain amount of money to work in the community. And Banks have then most typically, especially the big ones, you know, a person or many people in huge departments sometimes that are focused on getting dollars out into the community. And I was, I was speaking with some of them last night and I said, you know, do you think you have the funnest job at the bank? Because they seem to be the ones that get to kind of like put on that community hat. And yet they have to kind of kind of hang out at HQ also and kind of talk about that bridging, like you said, between the banking and the, and the kind of real buttoned up part of of that work and the community. Yeah, no, they're the bridge of possibility. Yes. They are. And that, I guess that's a piece of play, isn't it? That you are creating possibilities where none might have existed and that you kind of have to say, okay, well, Jimmy next door doesn't like, you know, he wants to play army all the time. You know, how do we get him, to, you know, whatever it is we want to do? There's a persuasiveness in that. Okay. World. So the, maybe the analogy there would be the, the folks in the bank whose job it is to drive deposits, right? To, or attract, I should say deposits, right? So then how does a CRA officer have that colleague feel that their needs are being met or their purposes served by the community work. Absolutely right. That is what it is. It's, I had a colleague who used to call, you know, we're pulling, you know, we're the tugboats pulling the big liners into the mainstream of capital and connecting those, that mainstream to people who, you know, are left out for one reason, who need to have a place to make deposits. How does that happen? How does CRA give you that window? of possibility where none might have existed before. They were saying that, you know, over the last three years, you know, especially with COVID and since the murder of George Floyd and some racial awakening that has happened and some sustained, that some of their colleagues 
came back around and said, what was, didn't you a few year ago, years ago present something to us about like redlining? Can you tell us about that again? <laughs> so th- within the bank, some folks kind of paying attention in new ways and being curious in new ways. And I think that's happened in the broader community and economy and philanthropic sector as well. This idea that people working long and hard in the sector over the years knew these problems existed. Others are, are aware of them for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is, you know, it's something that if you've been around as long as I have, you have seen some cycles and it's important not to be become jaded. So when I, I was kidding around and I was using the word in, I write quite a lot and I was using the word intention yodeling. And my intention yodeling idea was that lots of CEOs, you know, they go to the World Economic Forum, you know, they have a couple of drinks, they then decide they're going to do something good for the world. And then the next thing they, you know, they're saying, okay, we're doing 130 trillion for climate change. You know, really? You know, how do you actually, what's the plumbing that gets that money out into the economy? Where are the deals? How are you? And so there is a drumbeat, there's a cycle of large intentions being, I call it yodeling because you're just sort of yodeling it out into the media world. And afterward, nobody really follows up and says, well, what's been the performance on that intention? And for that reason, sadly, banks who do a lot of amazing things, I can tell you, forget the last intention yodeling, may not even perform on it. And this is pervasive, sadly. And I'm not even, I'm not trying to pick on banks, although they are intention yodelers, many of their CEOs. Well, and you've, I've read some of what you've written and you guys will put links on the show notes to some of Clara's really thoughtful and and well-read, well-regarded pieces about like how everything ultimately is needs to be enterprise level. And, And let me see if I get this right. Even a big statement, even a big yodel, not even, only. A big yodel can only be actually actualized, ultimately, if some people are doing something and there's opportunity, I mean, it'll come down to people and ideas and execution. Yes. Right. Yes. And it happens at the enterprise level. Typically it is, you know, even if a foundation is making a grant, it's not a big blob of love, really, you know, (laughs) that surrounds this nonprofit or something or rather, you know, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. It's really, you are providing money to an enterprise And that enterprise is going to, you know, kind of do what it has promised you in in the same way as you buy a new blouse and you think it's going to fit and you, you know, you pay your money, you take. So there's the buyer aspect of it. And then there's the providing capital, which is the builder. And that's a different role. There's very, you know, in the nonprofit world, it's kind of like, we're so hungry, we'll take whatever you give us for whatever you're asking us to do. That's not healthy. But yes, how does money turn into mission? What does money have to do with these missions? Everybody thinks it's the money, but it's not. It's the execution that's the challenge. It's the ideas and the people and the plans. Yeah. Yeah. And the actual, you know, we sent home care folk to the site and they lit up this old person's world and provided health care and then left. And that's where the mission gets delivered. We do lose sight of that. Oh, yes. It's so true. I'm going to have us grab our ice cream 
Oh, good. Um, because we're going to talk more about play. And so, folks, this is a really important commercial break. Taharka Brothers is our sponsor for this, the CEO season. Taharka Brothers is a social enterprise. I've told this before, but for those who are listening for the first time, check them out, taharkabrothers.com. They're based in Baltimore, but ship nationwide. And good news, minimum shipping is six pints. So by definition, you're going to get a great sampling. Today we have, I'm having banana pudding. I'm having chocolate love. Oh, chocolate boy. ice cream with a chocolate cookie crumb swirl. Excellent. Yum, yum. Thank and you. Taharka Brothers is employee-owned and minority-owned. Husband and wife team started it and are keeping it going. And we have, okay, well, I'm going to have a bite. So this, this is called banana pudding. And it's looking to me like there's, this reminded me of old-fashioned like vanilla wafers inside. Remember Ooh. that? From like the 70s? Yeah. Ooh, yum, yum. Mm, we might have to swap back and forth. Mm. Oh, God. There's the sound of me eating oh, ice cream on the podcast. Oh, my. Mm. Oh, yeah, look at that. Look at that. Oh, that is beautiful. Isn't that something? What a, that's so, creative. So Taharka is sponsoring us by sending pints to the guests, to me, so we have this ice cream every episode of the season. The other sponsor of the season is Lounge Studios, which is where we're sitting right now. And our great friend Walter, who has us welcomed into his studio, which he built by hand and is now has 11 studios. And there are a lot of famous uh, like musical acts and such, Clara, that have been in these studios. We are, we are among some luminary artists and then also the Playful Podcast. We might be the only ones who've eaten ice cream in the studio. <laughs> Okay, so mm, wow, mm, yum yum, right? It's so good, you guys. Totally. So, who is the most playful person you know? Oh, you know who it is? It's a person who's actually now dead, sadly. Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in oh Wonderland. Oh my goodness! Why like, does that sound familiar? And Through the Looking Glass. Those books are, you know, I was going to say, okay, my dog, my kids, my, you know, I mean, there's a lot of playful stuff happening in my life, but he, everything he wrote was a game. Everything he taught, but it wasn't, it was serious. It was about the world too. It was about the way the world actually worked. And it was about analysis and mathematics and lots of other things. So it was the essence of a playful nature, I think. Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. So Oh, how interesting. Lewis Carroll. I'm going to look at that in in a, I mean, not that I thought it was serious, but I can look at it in a new, in a new light. And tell me over the years working, especially, I mean, NFF for, for nearly three decades and then almost a decade at Heron, do you think play added to or made your longevity in both those roles possible? Yes, because, well, and I guess the other was I had to have a job. (laughs) 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 There always has to be something, you know, something keeping you under control. But I think it was the idea that two things to being a founder, leader, kind of entrepreneur type person is one is you have to be able to recover from your stupid mistakes. Mm. So that's something that play helps you with because you have to make stuff up and you have to make stuff up all the time. And the second one is that you have to act the role of somebody who actually knows what is going, what to do. Is that a a bit of a character you have? Yes. It's not false, but it's still, it's a a role you play, a character you have to be It's inside you somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of a whistle to happy, (laughs) you know, okay, we don't have any cash. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be fine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, uh, as a leader, I have worked somewhere where it was not playful. Mm. And then a play gap, you know, or I guess there was a sense by the leadership that the mood was low. So some play was prescribed, but it wasn't a playful play. So it felt very false when yeah. it was then prescribed that we would now have some fun together because there was a sense that like management thought that the staff should have a little more fun. How do you avoid that? You try to, well, I don't know. You know, it is, it is really difficult if in a humorless world, in a world where it's kind of, I'm not saying command and control only because there's many things that you really need command and control. You want, if you're going to run a train line, you want it command. If you want to run a construction site, that doesn't mean the guys can't kind of joke around or the women can't and nobody can yeah. joke around, but it does mean that there's very strict pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. But I think morale has to do with feeling like the leader is with you, is one of you. And when, when you say play, it seems like it's kind of overly lighthearted, perhaps. But, you know, a player coach would be my more or less ideal, that you don't end up kind of being on a pedestal and being, you know, a, a legend in your own mind, as the saying goes. Yeah. I'm not sure how you avoid having somebody who's just a humorless bad leader who is full of themselves and decides, okay, morale is low, you know, <laughs> we'll, continue, frisbee. we'll continue flogging <laughs> me until morale improves, you know, <laughs> whatever, there's a sign, you know, so you can't have fun now or punishment. Substitute stupid activities for a bad culture, you know, that is, you really can't. And, you know, we've had, I've been in places where I'm supposed to be the leader, where we've had morale issues and it's sort of like, what? What's wrong with those people, you know? And then if you don't, then say, you know, start talking with people, start being a part of the group yourself. It's, it's never going to change. Has um, leadership come naturally to you? Well, I think that leadership has, management hasn't. I'm a crappy manager. And so when the place starts getting bigger than like 10 people in kitchen table management, I had to really try to learn how to do things different. And one, I managed to find an extraordinary chief operating officer for NFF made all the difference. Putting systems in place, you know, the kind of becoming a grown up. It's kind of like, okay, you're Wendy now. You're not Peter Pan. <laughs> I've heard someone say that a CEO should never leave a meeting with a to-do list. What do you think about that? I don't know. I mean, I just, I think the rules need to be made up on the field. <laughs> made up on the field. Yeah. Hey, yeah, that's playful. Kids yes, do that, exa- right? That's, that was my point. Yes. That, okay, we got a problem with, you know, whoever it is. They keep going and telling their mother or they won't, you know, they're taking their ball and going home. They're bad sport. What do we do about that? You know, you, you need to be responding to the field conditions. If you're just going home and reading a management book and then coming in and saying, no, hear this, I'm not leaving this meeting with, you know, you're not really yeah. paying attention to, to who you are. Dr. Brown, the play researcher that we often refer to, he was talking about one of the things he's noticed lost over the generations that because kids today, you know, Western U.S. kids, I'll say probably mostly, their, most of their play is through organized sports. 
And so the rules are established, the coach is enforcing versus when, you know, I'll say we would play out front and make up the dodgeball or the kickball, or we would draw and chalk on the street. And there was a grown up we checked with to see what game we should play and how we should play it. He did point out, though, that he thought that if you watch the sidelines or the dugouts of a soccer game or a Little League game, for example, you're going to see kids, they can't resist but to engage in some of that kind of silly, unstructured, no one's watching playfulness while they're together. The coach's attention might be on the field and the kids in the dugout are going to be playing some game with a piece of wadded up gum or they're going to be screwing each other with Gatorade or something like that. He said kids are still seeking that, even though it's not necessarily why why the grown-ups all think they're there that day. Right. I think organized sports are super important and they have a place and they are, a, you know, I don't, I don't think they're a substitute for unstructured play. And in organized sports, you learn about teamwork, you learn about authority, you learn about how to lose and how to win. I mean, you do in your own games too, if you're just putting them together. But I think it's when there is, it's not being inculcated into people what their position, what their agency, as it were, is in the game, that they start feeling like they're part of a sort of a robot system run by adults or something. They're supposed to be these pawns in a, in a bigger game. And that's a, superly, a super important balancing act for the coaches of, of young people, I think. Then there are also, there are, play, there are games where there's more improvisation than other games. And there's game, and there are sports where there's more teams than individual efforts. Mm-hmm. So it's, right. it's complicated. I know you brought a book with you to show us because I told you I was going to ask you as a, as a leader, what has been a good resource for you about leadership and management, so to speak. And I love what you brought. So, okay. So um, I, I was thinking, so what? Hold it up. The most important management book Mm -hmm. in my life. And it's a book called A Bargain for Francis by Russell and and Lillian Hoban. The illustrations are folks of a certain age are going to recognize this. Either both, I think I'll say for myself, from having it read to me when I was a kid, and then I got to read it to my kids. Yep. Francis is this little badger who kind of gets into some perfect trouble. Tell us about, about what management lessons. So so basically, what happens with Francis? is that she's supposed to play with Thelma, and her mother says, be careful. And Frances says, well, why? And she says, remember the last time, you know, she got she hit you in the head with her boomerang or something like that. Um, and so Frances says, I don't know, not that important. Long story short, what happens is that Frances and Thelma both covet a tea set that's in a store downtown, and they go down and they look at it and so on and so forth. And Thelma says, you know, they try to figure out how to get it. And Francis says, I'm saving up for the tea set. And various things transpire. And Thelma manages to sell her slightly broken tea set to Francis, whereupon Thelma takes the money from this sale, goes downtown and buys the new tea set, and then shows it off to Francis. Francis is fit to be tied. And figures out a way to then hoodwink Thelma into selling her the the tea set. I can't even remember what happens. But the long story short is that at the end, see, I bet. Here, let me hold your ice cream. Oh, yeah, I can. I would definitely spill it right down my front. 
So let's see now. Thelma says, well, said Thelma to Francis, from now on, I will have to be careful when I play with you. And Francis says, being careful is not as much fun as being friends. Do you want to be careful or do you want to be friends? I want to be friends, said Thelma. All right, said Francis. Then I will give you halfsies on the dime and so on and so forth. They go by bubblegum. <laughs> but the point is, don't do business with people you don't trust. You can't. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many, you know, whether you went to Harvard Business School or whatever it is, if you cheat, if somebody is a cheater, you shouldn't be doing business with them. And if and and so Francis has sort of learned a management lesson here, but the the underlying lesson is you need to balance the fairness. You have to have fairness yeah. at the core of one's relationships, whatever they might be, management, friendship, whatever it is. This is making me think about. I wonder if Francis and Thelma have two different play personalities, perhaps. Oh, so the play do. personalities are the eight different play types: Joker kinesthete, director, storyteller, collector, creator, competitor. If you had a chance to look at those, did. Did, did one did. or some jump out? So I, I thought, I think I might have multiple play personality disorder. This is allowed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you have seven, that might be a little challenging, but no, I, multiple. I, I think, yeah. I mean, and I think anybody who is trying to manage an organization or lead an organization has to play a lot of different kinds of parts. So having that willingness to be a performer really is important. But from the point of view of what was motivating me, I think it was always saying, what's at the bottom of this? What is that? Why is this happening? Why does this have to happen? What has to be fixed to to make this better? And digging down into the essence of a problem as opposed to just fixing it on the margin. So, for example, I mean, it's the old aphorism of you have to, you have to both nurse the sick and drain the swamps if you're going to cure malaria. You can't do one and just kind of. And I think in recent years what's happened is that the flow of problems, of systemic problems, has been huge. And nonprofits are kind of drinking from a fire hose here. And so there's no way that the nonprofit sector can solve the kinds of things that are being thrown at it. This is a fantasy. It has to be, the system itself has to heal itself so that the problem flow will diminish. Well, in the, you know, one of my favorite soapboxes is you know, this idea that the disconnect that the largest problems in the world be solved by a sector that has no guaranteed income stream except for the largest of others. Oh, oh it goes on. It <laughs> goes just on. A start. Don't, don't get and it I was started. reading one of the points that you made in something I read that I hadn't thought about, which is where the, the customer in a nonprofit scenario, in a in a in a change sector scenario, and the purchaser of the service are not the same. So this right. great disconnect, and you use the metaphor of a, of a hotel guest. So if I show up at the front desk and say, I'd like a room, but I don't have any money. And they're like, well, could you just wait here in the lobby and we'll find someone to pay for it. 
And then they have to go find someone, which takes that old search. And then they have to make promises to that, that funder about what they're going to do and who's going to get the room and come back to me. And well, no wonder it's all busted. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> really, it doesn't matter if you've been right. in business. At the end of the day, I realized I've been hoodwinked. You know, nobody who really understood anything about business would have taken this job <laughs> This is crazy. So you sort of have to be called to the mission in order to do it at all. I love it. Okay, so now I'm going to take us into this final moments, these final moments here. And Clara, is there, given your, you you shared with us 50 years in the sector, given your various seats around the table. And now I think you're almost like a drone. You're kind of observing from above all the activity. Do you have a call to action to the change maker audience that, that listens to the playful podcast? Oh, wow. I mean, we I mean, have, pick one. We're, we're up against <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. We're up against it. I do not think what we're facing will be solved on the margin. It will take all of us. It will take, you know, it's very, you know, everybody talks about system change and nobody does anything about it. But that means, I think, that all of the things we hold so dear, we're, we're going to have to give up or we're not going to make it. And it doesn't really matter which, whether it's saying we have to restore the, the biota of the, the environment or the economy or the, the diversity, the playfulness, all of the things that we talk about loving that feed us every day, literally and figuratively. We can't do that on the margin. Nonprofits can't do that for people. Companies can't do that for people. Everybody has to, the, certainly the government is, is in crisis now. So I think we have to look to our, our roots, our communities, you know, do what we can. And my uh, Reverend Tutu had a wonderful way of, of expressing this. He would say, I am not an optimist. Uh, but I am a prisoner of hope. <laughs> and so I would say that about myself. I think I'm building, I'm part of a pollinator pathway. You know, I'm swanning around and doing all sorts of things. I'm part of Walden Mutual Bank. I'm part of various undertakings, projects, et cetera, that I think can be helpful. You know, I'm a prisoner of hope. Yeah, I would agree. I have that same, I feel the same. I always tell folks that, and this podcast is a perfect example that all I do is hang out with people who care. I mean, it may skewed view perhaps, but that is fine with me because I'm going to keep trying to lift up and amplify those that are working in service of others. And when people say, oh, we're so polarized and we're so divided, I say, or, or not, maybe not. Maybe let's keep saying, well, maybe, maybe I believe Everybody there's- Everybody likes ice cream. Right, right. Start with ice cream. <laughs> Start with something. We had a guest on. She said, find the third thing. If you feel like this and I feel like this, what's our third thing? Do yes. you love French bulldogs? Do yes. you like to go sailing? Do you play yeah. tennis? Do you like ice cream? There's so many things we could agree on. Yeah, we'll start there. Clara, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And most of all, thank you for all you're doing for on behalf of the sector, on behalf of the planet and the people. And we're going to keep following you so that we can be smarter and better ourselves. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been delightful. Thank you. What fun. Here. Thanks, everybody, for joining us once again. And we'll see you next time. 
So that was just a ton of fun talking to Clara Miller and the double scoop from this episode. And I have so much to choose from, but I'll, I'll pick these two things. First of all, I don't think Clara is very good at being retired. And we're so glad that is so. She continues to write and speak and teach and lead and be a disruptor and innovator in our sector. And we are so grateful for that. And number two, I love what she said about sometimes being lighthearted in the face of daunting challenges can be a bit off-putting to people, but stick with it. Realize it's a tool in your toolkit to use. And even though it might feel like making a joke at church, it's worth doing and everyone will end up being grateful for it. And I really heartily agree. So thanks for being with us as always and see you next time. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to The Playful Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know of a leader organization that's doing good in the world and you'd love to help us help them amplify their message, I would love to have them on the show. Go to the show notes and click there or go to impactfulinc.com slash contact. And that's impactful with two L's, inc.com slash contact. And let us know who you're thinking about. Can't wait to see you next time.